What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 21 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland. It's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. In today's episode, we're speaking to Jay McTighe. Jay brings to our discussion a wealth of experience developed during a rich and varied career in education. He served as a teacher, the director of a state collaboration of school districts, a school improvement expert, and an educational consultant more broadly. Jay has an extensive background in professional development and is a regular speaker at national, state, and district conferences and workshops. Jay is an accomplished author, having co-authored 14 books, and his books have been translated into 10 languages. Jay has also written more than 35 articles in book chapters and been published in leading journals. Perhaps most famously, Jay co-authored the award-winning and best-selling book, Understanding by Design, with Grant Wiggins, about which we'll be speaking today. I loved exploring issues surrounding Understanding by Design with Jay, and in this AAA episode, you'll hear me ask Jay the following questions. What are essential questions, and how do they help us teach for understanding? What are the most common mistakes that teachers make in assessment? Where is the understanding by design framework being used? And what have been some of its impacts? What are some of the common misconceptions about understanding by design? And where should teachers start if they want to try it out? And perhaps the juiciest question of all, what is understanding? And I hope that you enjoy hearing me struggle to get my head around this concept during the interview. Before we jump into the ERRR, I just wanted to remind you about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insights, interesting and actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter blogs and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. Last week's email included articles on what is learning and how can we catalyze it? How a light touch intervention focusing on student study skills significantly improves students' outcomes. A Twitter thread on considering basing our planning on what won't change rather than what might. An article on whether or not we should use competition in an attempt to get buy-in from disengaged boys. And much, much more. If you'd like to sign up for this weekly email, just jump onto ollilovell.com and you should see the sign-up form in no time. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 21 of the Education Research Reading Room with Jay McTighe. Jay McTighe, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Happy to be with you, Ali. Thanks so much for, for joining us. The first question we usually ask guests is, if you're at a party, Jay, and someone says, oh, hi, Jay, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I, I like to suggest that I'm a nuclear physicist that's just accepted a Nobel Prize, but generally people disregard that. So the, the real answer is I tell people what I currently do, which is I'm an educational author and consultant. I work with schools and school districts, work with independent, international, and public schools all over the world and enjoy very much what I do. Fantastic. And could you give us a bit of a brief history of your career to date? I'll try to be brief. I've been in 
education 47 years, and I'm still going strong, I, I think. I started off as a teacher. Early in my career, I got interested in the potential of very bright students, not all of whom were good in school, but had, had great intellect and, and ability. And I started trying to do things that would enrich the curriculum for them. And that got me into my early career was working in gifted education as a teacher, a resource teacher, and then a program coordinator. I also directed a, a governor's school summer program, which was a residential program for a month with some of the brightest students in my state. I then went on to work in state ed, not to be a bureaucrat, but to work on some of the things that were happening in gifted education more widely to spread the idea of focus on higher order thinking, more authentic assessment, getting kids focused on applying their learning, not just learning basic skills, but being able to apply them. And in that context, I met Grant Wiggins, who was working a lot on authentic assessment. And he and I met, became friends, and ended up co-writing Understanding by Design. That book was somewhat surprising to us, but happily for us, took off. And it got to the point where I was getting more requests for presenting and consulting than I could do with a full-time job. So I made a switch after 25 years into full-time writing and consulting, which is what I'm still doing. What was it about your time working in gifted and talented education or or was there anything that you really think shaped your views that then led into understanding by design? It's a great question. When I reflect back on my work in gifted education, which literally was in the early to mid-70s through the mid-80s, things that we were doing back then with very bright students are things that today we would call project or problem-based learning, Socratic seminar, deep learning, inquiry, things that now have names. But we, we were doing them because we felt they were the kind of education that very bright kids needed and were benefiting from. And, and so many of those ideas are, are, in fact, underpinning the ideas of understanding by design. Interestingly, my colleague, Grant Wiggins, I worked always in public education, and he worked in independent schools, and he taught in high-level academic boarding schools, where there was a, very much of a tradition of college preparatory work, and he, he used Socratic seminar and central questions very much in his teaching. So when we got together and, and combined our experiences, the, the two careers that, that met together really kind of naturally set up ideas in understanding by design. And the one difference I would say from what I was doing in the 70s and 80s with gifted kids is I believe that these ideas are important for all students, not just the top 5%. Yeah, that was, that was going to be my next question, actually, giving the kind of your own experience and Grant's experience in that gifted and talented kind of area. Does that mean that some of what we're going to be talking about today applies more to that kind of end of achievement or, or do you think it applies equally across the board? I think it is an across the board application. And I'll give you a few reasons for so stating that. First, we know that there are factors that influence students' willingness to put forth effort in school. And one of those factors is the extent to which students see relevance or meaning or utility in what they're being asked to learn. And I've seen too often, particularly for lower achieving students who may not come into school reading or as they go through the school grades, they are missing basic skills. 
often the belief is, well, we can't do any of the higher order things or the more authentic applications with them because they don't have all the basics. So we're going to have to go back and work on the basics. And and what I've seen too often is kind of a, a low level basic skill, you know, some people call it kill and drill curriculum that's often decontextualized and not very engaging. And then we say, well, the kids aren't motivated and they're, they're not learning even the basics. An analogy that I like to use is with athletics. And so if you think about athletics, athletics is motivated by the game or the performance. Mm-hmm. And players will work hard in practice and they'll learn the rules and they'll learn the basics because they want to play the game. Authentic performance is a motivator. And if you think about the game, a game is not just acquisition of knowledge and skills. To be a good game player in any sport requires understanding. You have to have a strategic understanding of the game as well as teamwork and conditioning and so on. So I like to say, let's think about our curriculum as preparing students to play the game. And the game involves authentic performance. And we plan backward from the game, given the the students we have or the players on our team, to figure out what knowledge, skills, and understandings they're going to need. But my point is the game is the motivator and the driver. And I think too often school curriculum is the equivalent of the playbook that the coach has. And I think some teachers unwittingly think their job is to cover the playbook play by play without thinking about what the student needs to know, which is the game we want to play with the knowledge and skills we're learning. So that's a long way of saying one of the things that that I think motivates kids is authentic performance where they see relevance, they see real world application. There's a challenge, but they think it's a worthy challenge. And we see kids willing to put forth effort to learn the basics if there's such a challenge put forth. Without the game, how many players would go to practice every day and work hard if they weren't working towards something larger than just covering the playbook? That's a good point. That's a a very interesting point. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, the way you start your book is with a a little vignette. And I'd I'd like to start the, the interview with this vignette as well. And it's it's all about apples. So it's, it's about a paragraph, but maybe I'll read it out for listeners and then you can speak to why you wanted to start the book with this vignette. For two weeks every fall, all third grade classes participate in a unit on apples. The third graders engage in a variety of activities related to the topic. In language arts, they read about Johnny Appleseed and view an illustrated film strip of the story. They each write a creative story involving an apple and then illustrate their stories using tempera paints. Is that how you say it? I'm not sure what they are. Uh, Tempera, yes. Fantastic. In art, students collect leaves from a nearby crabapple trees and make a giant leaf print collage that hangs on the hallway bulletin board adjacent to the third grade classrooms. The music teacher teaches the children songs about apples. In science, they use their senses to carefully observe and describe the characteristics of different types of apples. During mathematics, the teacher demonstrates how to scale up an applesauce recipe to make enough for all the third graders. A highlight of the unit is a field trip to the local apple orchard, where students watch cider being made and go on a hayride. The culminating unit activity is a third grade apple feast, a celebration in which parents dress in apple costumes and the children rotate through various activities at stations. Making applesauce, competing in an apple word search contest, bobbing for apples, and completing a math skill sheet containing world problems involving maths. The feast concludes with the selected students reading the apple stories while the entire group enjoys candy apples prepared 
by the cafeteria staff. Now, this sounds like a pretty dynamic kind of a unit that I would assume happens in a primary or elementary school. Why did you want to start the book with this vignette? Well, to us, it's an illustration of not uncommon teaching and learning experiences that especially are evident in elementary or primary schools. And so when you look at it on the surface, it has some wonderful features. It's engaging. The kids are involved in a variety of activities. It's interdisciplinary. It's thematic. And the parents are involved and the kids are doing things. So what's not to like? Well, the vignette is appealing, but when you peel pun intended, when you peel (laughs) away the skin, the question becomes, are there any core ideas in the apples unit? At the end of it all, what do we want students to walk away from or, or from this experience that they really get? One of the phrases we like to use in understanding by design is the, is a concept of what we call enduring understanding. So what do you hope endures? My guess is in, an, in a unit like this, the kids might remember the party and maybe a few of them will remember their story because they put some time into it. Mm. And some may remember the hayride. But if you take, if you parse out all those different subject areas, are they really getting much in science? from observing an apple and that's all, or in art from making a, a, an apple collage. So we use that to make the point that teaching and learning can be engaging without being effective, right? To be effective, you have to have clear goals. You have to have evidence that you've achieved those goals or that students have achieved those goals. And the goals have to be worth it. And that's what we talk about, enduring understanding, something that's really worth it. And we feel that that unit, as lovely as it is, as engaging as it is, is missing the core ideas. Fantastic. We write about that. We write about that as one of three potential problems that we see widely in in planning and teaching. And, And let me summarize. One, characterized by the Apples unit, is what we call activity oriented curriculum. You tend to see activity oriented curriculum with younger kids. And it's all well-intentioned, where the kids are engaged in some activity, or they're making something, or they're doing something. So it's engaging, but the question is, what will they get out of it? Is there anything enduring? Are they really exploring important, transferable ideas? And too often, the answer is no. Mm. The second problem that we see is more characteristic at the secondary and collegiate levels, something that we refer to in the States as coverage-oriented curriculum. Typically manifests as a teacher marches through a textbook and tries to cover everything before the end of the year, Mm. or marches through a long list of state standards or outcomes. And the problem that we have with coverage is that, number one, not all standards or outcomes are equal. Number two, most provincial or state standard documents are voluminous. Most textbooks are ambitiously large. Mm. There's too much content and not enough time. And so what do you do about that? Well, you could talk fast in class and cover more, yeah. but, 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 but that's, not a, that's not a satisfactory answer. We think there's a need to focus and prioritize teaching. And we say, let's prioritize around the, quote, big ideas that are enduring, that give meaning to the subject matter, 
And let's focus on having kids apply their learning in authentic ways. That's what's lasting. That's what's more motivating for kids as well. The third problem that we see a lot in the U.S., and I think to some extent I've seen it a bit in Australia, given NAPLAN's growth over the last you know, five, 10 years, is what we refer to as test prep. Mm. And I can tell you, this is particularly gripping in the United States in public schools. Mm. Because state testing and national testing is high stake for schools and and teachers, Uh, results go in the paper, real estate values are impacted by a school's test scores. There's this fixation on only teaching the things that are tested and only practicing for the test in the ways the content is tested, which in the U.S. is primarily through selected response or multiple choice forms. And so what we get is a focus on what I call multiple choice teaching and decontextualized learning. I could go on and on about the mm. ills of that, but I've seen that too often as, as capturing the focus of teaching. And, and that's not to say be idealistic and say, love the children and the test scores will be fine. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're going to teach things that are tested, but that's not to say we have to have a test prep curriculum. And unfortunately, I see that in too many places. Understood. So, so let me summarize then. The three problems that understanding by design can help to avert, one is activity-oriented curriculum. If there's not a clear focus on the larger transferable ideas in the activities, Two, coverage-oriented curriculum, which can simply promote superficial coverage rather than deep learning. And thirdly, test prep, which conflates test format with cognitive rigor and relevance. Excellent. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into how we kind of avert these three challenges that I'm sure the listeners are too. Your book has kind of set down three sections and they follow the three steps of designing or backwards design, as you put it. So the first is identify desired results. The second is determine assessment evidence. And the third is plan learning experiences and instruction. So I thought that could be a good format for our our kind of approach today. Sure. So you talk, I guess, fundamentally, understanding by design, the, the main thesis of your book is that we should teach for understanding. What What's your definition of understanding, Jay? I will define or describe what Grant Wiggins and I have, how we characterize understanding, and we characterize it in terms of what we would see in someone who displays understanding of whatever concept or process we're referring to. Mm -hmm. That someone who understands can do things that somebody with just surface knowledge cannot. So someone who understands can apply their learning to a new situation, or more specifically, they can transfer. Mm -hmm. Someone who understands can explain things in their own words and in their own ways. Someone who understands can interpret. To interpret literally means to make sense of something or to make meaning from. Mm -hmm. So someone who can interpret, for instance, uh, in math, can recognize patterns and extrapolate those patterns to make a prediction Mm -hmm. and justify it mathematically or statistically. And the same thing in other subjects, for instance. They can look at patterns in history and infer what might happen in the present given these patterns. Those are examples of evidence of understanding. 
someone who just knows something can give back what was told them in the way it was they, it was told, but without understanding, that's about all they can do. So to summarize, understanding is manifest when someone can apply their learning, they can transfer it, and they can explain it. I was really interested when reading this part of your book. So we've talked about the way that understanding is manifest, but what what lies beneath that? Like, what is it? Because if you can explain something that demonstrates that you understand it, right? but what lies beneath that ability to explain a concept, for example? Yeah. So one of the mantras that we have in understanding by design is that understanding must be earned. It must be earned by the learner. To say it more overtly, understandings are formed in the mind of the learner. You can't just tell a student an understanding and they'll immediately apprehend it. For example, correlation does not ensure causality. Mm-hmm. Everybody got that? Just by stating that, it's unlikely that kids are going to really grasp that abstract idea. Mm. You're going to have to develop or, or facilitate the student making meaning around the concept of the relationship between correlation and causality. Just as an, as an aside with that example, I met a teacher once that was teaching that, and he started the lesson by, he had a, a newspaper, and he held it up to the students, and this was high school level, and he said, oh, you know, they, they came into the class, and he was reading the newspaper. It was in front of his face, mm-hmm. and they sat down, and he kept it up, so they were, that kind of got their attention, like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Then he put the paper down, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I was so absorbed in this article, I didn't realize you were coming in, but let me tell you about it. it it's an article that says that, that researchers have found that of adult criminals began by drinking milk as babies. And so I was thinking, well, wow, we could prevent crime if we just kept milk from babies. What do you think about that? Mm. And he, he started with that story. And so that illustrates two things that are germane to teaching. One is before you can teach something, often you got to get the learner's attention. Mm -hmm. So the best teachers have always used some kind of hook or way of grabbing attention at the start of a lesson or a new unit. So that teacher did that. But but the more important point to your question is, understanding must be earned by the learner. The teacher could tell students, correlation does not ensure causality. Here were two examples. But the, the teacher is doing the work. The student is just taking it in. We think that understanding requires active mental manipulation. They've got to think about things. They have to try things out. They have to test. They have to respond to devil's advocate questions. And that's how one comes to understand. In fact, think of the phrase, come to understand is not static. It's a process that occurs over time. Mm. So to summarize, I don't know the neuroscience behind understanding, but I will contend that understanding involves a mental process of constructing meaning linking new ideas with prior knowledge, and earning understanding through active mental engagement. And that implies, therefore, and we'll talk further about this in stage three, Mm. but this implies that the teacher's role is more than just a teller. The teacher has to assume, in part, a role of facilitating meaning-making. And we do that through essential questions, through posing problems, by playing devil's advocate, by having kids ponder and try to work out 
solutions and meanings. Fantastic. And we can dive, dive more into that a bit later. I guess a key question I have, because I, I'm very partial to a phrase that's that's from Daniel Willingham. I'm not sure if you've come across it before. I, I do know Daniel's work, sure. Fantastic. It, his, his phrase relating to understanding in his book, in one of his books, is understanding is remembering in disguise. Essentially, the way I read this is this is related to understanding is basically knowledge and, and deeper levels of understanding represent knowledge structured in slightly different ways and looking probably more at deeper structures within that knowledge of, of phenomena rather than surface structures. So I, I guess I was interested in your reflections in relation to the question, what is the difference between understanding and knowledge? It's a great question. I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, I agree in part with Willingham, but not completely. Mm-hmm. I, I personally wouldn't characterize understanding as deep remembering. But where I do agree is you you have to have some basis for forming an understanding in one's mind. And the basis is prior knowledge. You, you can't think about something you don't know anything about. So so knowledge is needed, necessary, but insufficient. Mm. That's point number one. Point number two is an analogy that I'm fond of is like, is a kaleidoscope. You're familiar with a kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. It got it has bits of colored glass, and when you rotate the kaleidoscope, different combinations form. So if you think about your knowledge base as the colored bits of glass, and that the mental manipulation that you do as a learner and the teacher facilitates in, is like the rotation of of the kaleidoscope. That what you're doing is you're making new combinations, seeing new connections, and and that in part is what understanding requires. To, to say it more bluntly, the mosaic created by rotating the kaleidoscope is more than the sum of the individual bits that are that are that are the formation, mm-hmm. if you will. That you can have a lot of knowledge without understanding. Understanding is more than just an accumulation or accretion of, of individual bits of knowledge. That's point number one. Point number two has to do with how do we assess the differences. If knowledge is what you want, I can assess that through a straightforward quiz, test, objective, objective test or quiz with an objective answer. In other words, knowledge is binary. You know it or you don't. But understanding is more a matter of degree. You can think of someone with a surface understanding. They have a, they got the, the gist of it, but it's not deep. They have a, a deep understanding. Or on the other end, they have a misunderstanding. You can think of understanding as along a continuum as opposed to being binary. And that's one of the distinctions that's noteworthy. Clearly, there are things that students need to know. They're building block ideas and facts and, and basic skills. And of course, they're needed. But that's, they're qualitatively different than understanding, I would say. Let's go back to the sports analogy. Think about athletics. You can't play the game well if you don't know the rules. There's knowledge required. You can't play the game if you don't have basic skills. But knowledge and skills are insufficient. You also have to have understandings, otherwise known as strategy. Because I'm sure we've all seen players that may be athletic and may have good skills, but they're not smart game players. And, a, and another, you know, an opponent or another team can can best them on the field or on the court because they're strategic. So 
that's one way of saying knowledge and skills are needed, but they're insufficient. And I don't simply think that more knowledge equals understanding. Okay. I might, I might go a little bit further with this because I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking about understanding and the yep. distinctions between knowledge and understanding. I guess I've been reflecting, just as you were speaking then, I was reminded of the study of Chase and Simon on expertise in chess. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that study or not. But mm-hmm. basically they showed, just then you were making a distinction between knowledge, skills, and understanding. And my kind of feel from, from reading your book, as, as well as a number of other sources, is that understanding is actually an accumulation of of a whole heap of knowledge that, as you mentioned, is interconnected in different ways and more complex and sophisticated ways. But then it kind of leads to a statistical learning and an intuition, if you like, that's built upon these extended schemes of knowledge. So in the in the Chase and Simon study, they found that chess experts were able to memorize various board positions of, of real chess games much better than novices. Right. And that's not because their you know brains had grown more or anything like that it's because mm. they had so they had stored in their mer- memory so much knowledge of past games as you've been referring to that they can draw on that that vast and deep kind of collection of knowledge in order to understand the current situation so so is it just an issue of semantics where we're talking about vast and deep and interconnected and complex knowledge as understanding or or is there actually some in your view is there actually some fundamental difference between knowledge and understanding i think there's a fundamental distinction now there's something else that willingham brings up and the chess study illustrates and that's something you mentioned in the opening part of your question there i do agree that there are if you will cognitive structures that develop that are born out of experience and, and they're part of, of meaning-making or, or constructing meaning. And so maybe this is a simple example, but if you were going to host a dinner party with some friends, you know, what would you plan for your dinner party? My guess is you would plan some kind of appetizer, some main course, and you'd have drinks that were, particularly if you're having wine, you would pair them with the main course. And you'd have accompaniments and you'd have a dessert. I mean, you may have an after dinner drink of some sort. And, and so you have a structure in your head about what a, what a nice meal consists of. And there are cognitive structures operating in all domains. And chess is a good example of that. I think it's that one builds a cognitive structure that sort of deep learning from experience of which knowledge builds. But once again, I, I don't think it's exclusively an accretion of knowledge. It's the formation of deeper structures that enable a person to, in the case of chess, to see four or five moves ahead. Or in mathematics, to recognize a problem pattern in which a strategy that you've used before could be invoked. I mean, the whole idea of heuristics and mathematics is born out of that idea. Mm. So I, I do agree that, that, that part of coming to understand is formulating the structures, the mental structures that will help you do new things and transfer your learning. Let me give one other, maybe better example than the meal. In, in English language arts, young kids 
often are they are read stories when they're young and then they read stories when they're able to read and then they begin to write their own stories well there's a story structure mm. and it can be articulated and so when a student comes to understand that a story has a structure there's a setting there are characters there's action often a problem that unfolds or a challenge there's a resolution there may be a twist that gives you now a structure so if you're going to write a story you're not just making things up randomly you have a structure to organize your thoughts mm. and when you read new stories you're going to start looking for is there a twist you know usually the character changes in some way what how are they going to change that's an example of a cognitive structure that enhances your reading and subsequently your writing of stories and and that's a part of understanding building those cognitive structures and that's what willingham in part was referring to yeah yeah totally and I, i'm 100% with you on that speaking to you now i think that we can probably talk about what we're both talking about by using well i guess we have been demonstrating this by using different degrees of knowledge to explain it as i've been trying to or using you know knowledge versus understanding as 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 you have been and i've been trying to think why is it that some people find it more helpful to use the knowledge versus understanding comparison and some people find it helpful to use the the shallow versus deep knowledge kind of comparison please indulge me in exploring this idea a little bit now but i think for me i think that there's a lot of talk at the moment of, often knowledge is condemned and compared to for example 21st century skills and many people will say we've been teaching you know knowledge for so long and students are bored at school etc etc we just need to be teaching 21st century skills now i i would argue in many ways that these skills are built upon knowledge and they're in many cases domain specific and i really worry that when we play off knowledge in 21st century skills for example or knowledge and understanding knowledge ends up kind of getting a bad rap and getting left behind now this is not this is not something that you do in your book because you explicitly talk about the role of knowledge in building understanding mm-hmm. but it is something that's, that that happens a lot and that's why i guess i have a preference for talking about levels of of knowledge because then we if we can all speak the same language about knowledge either being shallow or deep I feel that means that the key role of knowledge isn't left behind but we can still also build to those that deeper knowledge as well. Maybe here's another idea. I think that using the word understanding is really helpful as well because it explicitly tells teachers we're not just teaching facts. There's actually something additional to facts that we should be trying to impart to students and sometimes that's hard to put our finger on but by using this label understanding Now we all know we're we're aiming for something higher whether or not we can articulate what that is right now. H- how does that comparison sound sound to you? Does that make any sense? Yeah. The, the second part of what what you just said to me is the way that Grant Wiggins and I have tried to articulate the ideas of understanding by design. That it's not either or. You can't do any you can't do anything meaningful if you don't know anything. Mm. but i think there are qualitative differences between let me say a different way there are different kinds of goals and all are important and we think there are that goals that we would cast under the understanding umbrella 
are, are in fact qualitatively different than goals that we would cast under the term facts or basic skills. Mm -hmm. But we're not, we're not saying one is more important than the other. We're saying we need them all. And if anything, we are concerned with the point that you just made, which is sometimes education has fixated only on covering facts and skills, Definitely. thinking that that's all that's needed. So, so I have a couple further thoughts on that. Mm. One is, let me play another analogy out, driving, or more specifically, learning to drive. Think about learning to drive, or, or, a, or a young person who's learning to drive. There are things they have to know, right? They have to know the, the rules of the road, the traffic laws in their jurisdiction. They have to know the meaning of signs and symbols. They need to know the car parts, and at a basic level, what they do. So we can list all the knowledge needed by a beginning driver. And you shouldn't be driving a car if you don't know those things. Mm -hmm. There are clearly a number of skills that have to be practiced and it takes time to master the accelerator and brake relationship and you know, just steering, how to drive in reverse, merging into traffic, parking in a city, all the skills that we practice. So unquestionably, you don't wanna give someone a driver's license if they don't have basic knowledge and skills. Mm. But I would argue that they're also Conceptual understanding is important to drivers, such as defensive driving. Defensive driving is not a fact by itself. It's not a skill. It's a conceptual understanding that's mm. really important. Mm. The understanding might be stated as, look, you can be safe and, and careful as you, when you drive, but you're sharing the road with other drivers, some of whom are going to do dangerous or stupid things. And therefore, you have to be ever on your defensive against other drivers, not just in your own little bubble. That's a conceptual understanding that's worth developing. It's more than knowledge and skills. And it's taught not as a fact, et cetera. And so that's a long way of saying, Ali, that I think when people conceive of curriculum and what they're going to be teaching, they need to be thinking not of just knowledge and skill only, but of the larger conceptual understandings that enable you to lose your knowledge and skills in authentic and realistic situations. Mm. Yeah, and I think, and I think your use of the word understanding and the way that you kind of paint those aspirations for for teachers and and the education system more broadly through curriculum is is super powerful. Now, here's a here's a second quick point, if I may. Please, my daughter Maria taught at High Tech High, which is one of the the top project-based learning high schools in the U.S. And if you haven't seen it, Google that sometime. It's a fascinating place. They've made a declared commitment to 21st century skills. That's what they're focused on. In fact, they don't have traditional courses in English, math, science. They work on authentic projects. The kids go deep. They're highly engaged. The, the things they produce are extraordinary. But there's a cost. And my daughter would be the first to tell you, there are a lot of kids who graduate from high tech high who are terrible writers, some who, who can't do a basic algebra problem in math, mm. et cetera. But they're terrific cinematographers, or they can build a robot that will win a contest, mm. and so on. So I think that's a larger issue in education today. It's, it really is a backward design question. What are the priorities of a modern education? Mm -hmm. And and I don't think I absolutely don't think it's either or, but I do think 
the challenge today is to decide what's the balance between knowledge and what, what knowledge is most important to have, what basic skills are necessary, but then what are the larger ideas in terms of understanding, whether they be within traditional discipline areas or merging into the so-called 21st century transdisciplinary skills. That's just, I think, in the mix. But I, I agree with your point that I think you're bringing out, which is I don't think it's helpful to pair it off as an either or, or to imply that somehow knowledge is bad because we can Google anything we want now. Mm. I don't agree with that. I think, if anything, those kinds of reactions are a reaction to maybe what has been an overemphasis on rote learning in some places in the past. Mm -hmm. Yep, totally with you. Totally with you. One of the things you talk about as as a kind of a, a tool for building understanding or for or a way to craft our, our thinking about curriculum or unit design when we are trying to teach for understanding is essential questions. So so what what to your mind, Jay, is an essential question? I mean a central question is a question that opens the door to exploring larger ideas or processes within disciplines and some ideas that cut across disciplines. These are thought-provoking questions, hopefully thought-provoking for students. But by exploring them, we're helping students come to understand. In other words, they're grappling with questions that don't have a single correct answer around which the student has to make meaning. So permit me to give you a few examples. Please, yeah. So here's an example that I think cuts across disciplines. How do I know what to believe in what I see, hear, and read? That to me is an essential question. Definitely. It, it gets at critical thinking. It gets at source analysis. It gets at how I come to believe anything. And that's an essential question. Another question is, let's take mathematics, since that's your area. What do effective problem solvers do when they get stuck? I maintain that that question is one that you could ask first and second graders and kids in an IB calculus course. Mm -hmm. That question opens the door to, to learning about heuristics, strategic thinking, even habits of mind like perseverance that effective problem solvers don't give up the first time something doesn't work. Mm, and even and even what they've done before they come to this point, like what practice of prior questions have they done to build the knowledge base to enable them to access the concepts and identify the, the deep structures? Exactly. And, and so I could give you many more examples, but, the, but suffice it to say that one of the fundamental points of understanding by design as a curriculum planning framework is that we want teachers and curriculum teams to be clear about the important transferable ideas that really are at the heart of the discipline, that, that are important to really be able to do anything with the discipline, and then to frame those ideas and processes through essential questions. And that we lead the curriculum with the questions, because as a friend of mine said, a good question is like an itch, you, right? You want to scratch it. That's great. It's <laughs> under your skin. It stimulates the mind. And that's what we want. We want a mental itch. That's great. That's writing that down. Yeah, and there's another another point I, I'd like to make about essential questions. 
And and this, by the way, is a, is a way of interestingly and importantly bridging that what what we were talking about earlier, what some people might think is a gap or a tension between knowledge and understanding. So let's let's take the word discipline. We 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 talk about we organize schools around discipline, maths and science and arts and literature. So what is a discipline? Well, a discipline is not just a body of knowledge. A discipline refers to a disciplined way of thinking. And the knowledge that has accrued in the disciplines has come through the active process of making meaning, of trying to build understanding, trying to figure things out. Things that we now know today as facts, let's take in science, some years ago were mysteries. Mm. All we had was the question. Through active intellectual engagement, through hard thinking, through trial and error, and through systematic analysis, we came to understand something which we now might say is in our body of knowledge. But we didn't learn it by real learning. Mm. We learned it through active meaning making. So here's an interesting way of thinking about essential questions. If the content you teach are answers, what were the questions that led to those answers? If you're teaching linear equations in algebra, if linear equations is an answer, who the heck came up with that? Why did they come up with it? Why do we need it? What if we didn't have a way of representing equations through linear functions? That opens the door to understanding versus you could teach it in a very rote, didactic way, but the kids would be less likely to appreciate or understand mm. the power of that those ideas. Mm. Okay, great. In terms of examples, look, as, I was, as I was reading a book, I was thinking about this idea of a central question. I was kind of wrestling with it and struggling with it. And, and I tried to think of applying it to some things that are happening in my school at the moment. But I've got to admit, I did struggle a bit. And I kind of alluded to this in, in an email too. I think I think I might have mentioned. So, for example, the project that's happening at my school at the moment is some of our students are building like a giant globe, right? And this is in, this is in one of their math classes. And, and this has been a, a great project for them because, for example, they've learned about scale drawing sizing up small maps to be bigger ones. I've learned about longitude and latitude, which they didn't know before. And also you got that cross-disciplinary thing. They're, they're learning a lot about geography when many of them wouldn't have been able to name a lot of the continents and countries before. Now they can. This hasn't been driven by an essential question. So I, I guess my question for you in this case is, what would you see as being an essential question for this kind of a project if one were to exist? And what would be the benefit of using that essential question as opposed to not using it? I need to know a little bit more about the decided outcomes of the project. Can you give me a few of those? Okay, it's not actually a project that I've I've run, but my understanding is that it was to kind of give students a interactive way or an interesting way of engaging with some of those skills that I previously mentioned, like scale drawings, geography, latitude and longitude, and, and also to have an authentic audience. So this is going to be a project that's displayed to the rest of the school. Okay, so again, without knowing all the details, I'm just going to think out loud. Some of these Please, may yeah. not be as, as sharp, but um, how does mathematics support design? Who is our audience and what do they need? Mm -hmm. What makes quality work? Or how do we know our design is working? I mean, those are a few examples of fairly generic yeah. essential questions. But notice that they could be applied 
to primary kids building something through engineering. Mm -hmm. What do we do when we get stuck in our project? Would be mm -hmm. another one. Those are fair again, fairly generic, but applicable. Yeah, I, yeah. I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I'm wondering, kind of, what sort of a prominence do these questions? If I were to pick, pick one of those questions, like, what, for example, what are the needs of our audience? And if I were to situate that as an essential question in this unit of work that goes for you know four or five weeks, for example, what kind of prominence would that question take? When would you anticipate a teacher would introduce it explicitly to students, if at all? How would students be expected to respond to that in the context of building this large globe as a, as a class project, for example? Well, again, part of my answer would depend on the particular learning goals or outcomes that the project was meant to achieve. And, and by the way, now I'm not suggesting that this project is an Apple's unit, but I Feel also, free to. I could imagine that parts of it might be because part, part of what was missing in the Apple's unit was clearly articulated goals other than just engagement. Now I, I do understand the project you described is rich. I'm sure it is engaging for kids and it's multidisciplinary. But so let's go back to the audience question. Maybe a, a slightly different version would be for this project, a more specific question would be who is our audience for the globe and what will they need to learn? You know, what will they need? Mm. In other words, for building this globe, is the purpose to illustrate what the world looks like? Do the continents have to be accurately depicted? Does it have to be a scale model? Is our audience 10-year-olds, parents, or professors of geography? Mm. In other words, the understanding embedded in that question is that whenever you're producing something for an audience, whether it's a written product or a design, part of your, your design, or in the case of writing, your writing is influenced by your purpose and audience. So maybe, maybe that's the question. What's our purpose? Who's our audience? And what will an effective design need to be to meet those? Mm. I, I would say that's probably our essential question. And, and that we would not just jump into giving project specs and having kids start building stuff. We, we, would, we would take time to analyze those questions and those needs. Okay. And by the way, that would work for writing. That would work for oral presentation. That would work for cinema. And that works for design work of any sort. It's an essential question. And by the way, people in the field think about those things when they're writing, when they're producing a movie or when they're designing something. Definitely. In fact, if I thought about who's the audience for this podcast and what do they need, I'm not sure that I have. Maybe I should think more about that. <laughs> yeah, that makes it an essential question for you. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. And do you use the terminal? We're kind of getting into step three, which is the, the, the teaching at the moment. But... Would you do you use the terminology of essential question with your with your students, and you say, okay, now we're going to look at an essential question, and how does that go? Yeah, great question. It is jumping into stage three, and that's fine. Totally. A couple of thoughts. Number one, if you think about backward design as a planning process, so we think clearly about our desired results in stage one, and that includes not only the knowledge and skills, but the larger understandings we want to develop. Stage two will come to, which is assessment evidence. And now stage three 
is our teaching plan. Mm-hmm. So stage three, now the kids have come into the room. What are we going to do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? So my general recommendation with essential questions. Uh, number one, we're going to present the questions to the students right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. In fact, my recommendation is they're going to be on the board or on the wall from day one, and they're going to stay up the whole time. Now, I have a, I have a, version, I have a, a variation on that, which I'll come to in a moment. Mm-hmm. In other words, we want to lead with the questions. Why? Because the questions are a signal about what we're looking for them to come to understand. They also signal that we're not just going to tell you stuff. You've got to earn it. You're going to have to think in this unit. And these are questions that will help you think. And your answers are going to get deeper the more you learn and the more you understand. Mm. And by the way, that's a signal that one of the important purposes of the central questions is that they be revisited. Mm. This is not a question that you ask once, get an answer, and then you're done. Rather, this is a question you're going to come back to again and again. Midway through the GLOBE project, we want to say, time out. Let's remember our purpose and audience. Are we really meeting that if you do the the GLOBE this way? Mm. What are you doing that you're frustrated now in problem solving? Let's go back to our problem. What do effective problem solvers do? Let's go back to that question now when you're in the middle and you're frustrated. So these are meant to be one introduced early in the unit. They frame the unit. They guide how kids think and what teachers do in the unit. And ideally, you want the question to become in the mind of the learner. You want them thinking about when they're not in math class, but they encounter a problem. You know, what, what can I do here? I'm frustrated. I'm not sure what to do. But I did that in math. And here's something I can try now. It's the idea that you can transfer that we're pointing to. And the essential questions are a vehicle for that. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, you talk about what will be the enduring understandings for students. And, and I guess that's kind of a corollary of that is the, the question has to be enduring. So having it up on the board for the whole unit or even for a whole year, the students are going to get, that's going to become a part of them and a part of their, their psyche and understanding and worldview. And it also links to, to a great quote I heard on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast from John Mason and Ann Watson, which is the questions we should ask students over time are the questions we want them to start to ask themselves or to learn to ask themselves, which is very much what you're talking about in terms of scaffolding that transfer into other areas. So yeah, lots of lots of great links made there. Exactly. So let me let that actually sparks the second thing I wanted to mention on this. Please. That particularly for students who aren't used to schools that challenge them with essential questions and promote inquiry and and give them authentic challenges and problems. You know, some students have learned that school is about getting the right answer. And if you don't know it, you avert your eyes, so you're not called on. Mm-hmm. But for some students, using essential questions or using what I would call an understanding by design approach is changing the game for some of them. And they okay. may be uncomfortable with it. But I would, number one, propose that teachers be explicit about what they're doing and why they're posing essential questions, number one. But more importantly, Ali, they would invite student questions. The, the best indicator that the essential question is really having effect is when students start asking questions off of your question. Mm. 
And so even though as a general rule, I say, start the unit with the questions, put them on the wall, put them on the board. I don't mean that that's the only thing that one should do. An alternative would be, and I've met some excellent teachers that do this, they'll start the unit with a provocation, like the example of the teacher reading from the paper and talking about uh, the criminal correlation with milk, Mm -hmm. and then say, well, what questions do you have about this? In other words, ideally, the, the teacher's essential question or question would open the door for student questions. Mm. And over time in a class and over the grades, kids would become better at posing essential questions themselves, as opposed to what I think too often happens is little kids come in with wonderful questions in grade three, I mean, Mm. uh, three, four, five-year-olds. And by high school, they're sitting back saying, what do I have to do? And does this count? How much, how many points do I get? Is it on the test? Yeah. Yeah. Is it on the test? So that's a, that's the spirit behind essential questions. That's great. I want to use your expertise again for, for personal means one more time. I just finished getting scaffolding my year 12 physics students to write a physics report. And obviously a physics report is, is something which usually follows a pretty predefined format. There's, they've got a, you know, hypothesis, r- results, methodology, et cetera, discussion, conclusion. I was thinking about this as I was reading about your essential question, and I was, and I was wondering to what extent in this kind of a case where they have to learn to produce something that's within the kind of the the, the canon of science, for example, such an essential question is as relevant, or if you know the, these students, many of whom were struggling a lot with writing a high level science report to start off with whether it's better in, in such a case just to say, we're trying to learn this standardized process. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. One thought is you're inheriting kids who have been through an education system. You get them in grade, what, 11 and 12. Correct. Unless they've had a, a deep experience with scientific inquiry and really come to understand the scientific investigative process, and the role that a structured report has in that larger process, you, you already have a challenge. You've got kids that may be going through the process mechanically because you've given them a structure and they have to fill in kind of the blanks, but they don't really embody the scientific thinking. I mean, that would be my hypothesis because I've seen that a lot. Yeah, it has happened. Yeah. But having said that, so let's just step back. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is a, a panacea to the challenge that you have with 11th and 12th graders writing a good science report. But let's ask them a central question. How do we know what to believe about a scientific claim? How do scientists test their hypothesis to ensure they're correct? How do scientists effectively communicate to others? What's the role of peer review in science? I mean, those to me are examples of essential questions that underlie scientific process, methodology, the discipline of science. And you could argue that the science report they're being asked to write was structured in part to be able to answer those questions. Yeah, totally. But but my guess is many students don't have any under, the deep conceptual understanding of those things. And it's not your fault. It's in part, quote, the fact that they haven't been exposed to those ideas throughout school. So by the time you get them, 
ideally they would have a fairly deep understanding about the nature of science and science process. And ideally you could be asking, actually having at least some of your students conduct original scientific research that involves physics and communicate their findings and recognizing that the format of the report that you're giving them is what established scientists use to communicate and to validate or disconfirm hypotheses. Mm. It's, it's interesting because also like there's multiple things going on for these students when they're challenged in doing a report. There's the underlying physics, which can be a challenge. And, yep. and for, you know, for the students who are struggling more, I will usually recommend a question and support them to try to understand the physics. But, but for many of them still, that's a challenge. And writing about something you don't understand about is a massive challenge. You've got you know, yep. students with English as an additional language, and you've got, you've got students with issues using computers to create graphs and things like that. So there's so many levels. And I guess, I guess another question is, is it okay sometimes to set aside such an essential question to say, we're just going to focus on the mechanics of writing a report and over time, as you've, you know, that's become more second nature and, or, or, or natural for you. Now we can build upon the understanding or similarly, let's just focus on the physics now. And once you got that down, then we can write a port, a report about something that you're a hundred percent sure you really know what's going on. Yeah. Well, th those are two different question sets. The second question set has to do with what I hear is instructional priorities. And you're right, if they don't understand the content of physics, they're going to have a hard time writing about it. So it makes sense to me to sequence. We're going to go deep so you really understand the physics concepts. Now we're going to look at, at how we can write about that in a scientific report structure. So that makes sense. But but I, I don't think the answer is to undercut understanding. I think on the contrary, the, the, the goal should be to deepen understanding both about the content of physics, the concepts that you're teaching, and also a conceptual understanding of why scientists write in this form. I mean, think back to the example of the story structure with young kids. The scientific process is not unlike the story structure. It's a structure that has evolved to serve a purpose in the discipline. In the same way that a story structure can get you better able to write a creative story when you're a young kid. Mm. Um, and so deep, teaching the deep structure of science, not only the conceptual side of the content, but the methodology, the process of the discipline is in the mix here. But in the ideal world, and this is really what understanding by design is pushing for, your school would be linked to primary schools and that Every teacher teaching science would have a set of essential questions, conceptual understandings about process and content that would be building over the years. Mm. But most schools don't have that. And so you're inheriting kids who don't have a deep epistemological or disciplinary knowledge of the nature of science. The content itself is hard. And then you have the exacerbating circumstances of some kids are not good writers. Some kids don't like writing. Some kids don't speak English. And you got all that going on. And then you got the whole grading. Yeah. Uh, will it be on the test? I'm sure that's hovering over everything. So I'm not being, I don't, I don't want to be idealistic and just say, do this and it'll solve everything. But I am suggesting that what you're experiencing is an inherited phenomena born out of 10, 11 years of prior school experience. 
And it's really tough as a high school teacher to to intersect and 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 change that for the good in the ways that you aspire to. Mm. I just recognize that as a great challenge. Mm. And to me, it's a curriculum problem and it's a systems problem. It's not 11th or 12th grade problem. It's a you're seeing the manifestation of something that has built before you. Yeah, I, I, I guess to rephrase that, a lack of backwards design from you know, people being professors of science or expert art, artists or something down to kindergarten and preschool. Well said. In fact, I'm making a note. I'll send you, I'll send you a couple of articles that get at that notion that backward design is, can be applied at what I call the, the classroom level, whereby teachers plan units using backward design. But the real power of this way of thinking is when we plan an entire curriculum, grade 12 down to pre-K, or whatever the grade span is. And I call that the macro curriculum. And I'll send you an article about that. That'd be great. Final question in, in stage one, we're still in stage one, about identifying desired results and understanding. Is there anything that you're still unsure about when it comes to the idea of understanding? Yes. And I like, I appreciate you asking that. One of the things that is really interesting to me, but I don't pretend to know although I have some inkling, I think, is the role of intuition in understanding an insight. Some people have conjectured that that intuition is just rapid logic proceeding so quickly you can't track it. Mm-hmm. You get that aha, that insight, the light bulb goes off. One of the things that's been of interest to me for a long time is the impact of, of practices like meditation in which in meditative practices, you're actually quieting the mind. So instead of thinking deeply, you're not thinking. But it seems to me that those practices often bring clarity and insight. So that's always been an interesting kind of puzzle. How can turning off the mind actually improve mental clarity and deepen understanding and and promote that aha? So that's an area of interest of mine, and I'm actually finishing a book with a colleague of mine who's a a neurologist who, after 25 years of practice, became a teacher and taught taught in elementary and middle schools, including maths. And she's bringing in the neuroscience of learning, and, and she talks about it from a neurological perspective and looking at brainwave patterns in different states. So I, I think there's a whole world inside the mind that probably neuroscience will reveal that's in this in this domain, and it's a real interest to me, but I don't understand it yet. Right. Rich areas for further exploration. Stage two is determine assessment evidence. So before we jump into this, to your mind, what are some of the biggest mistakes that we usually see in assessments? There are... A number that I've seen routinely, one is, and it's an understandable one, but I think it's a mistake, where teachers will focus on the things that are easiest to test and grade, as opposed to not always assessing what are the most important outcomes. Mm. Arguably, it's easier to test for factual knowledge. There's a single correct answer. You can use a format with an answer key or you can machine score. 
And nobody can say you're being subjective or you don't like my kid because here's a score. You know, this is what your kid knows and doesn't know. So I get that. And certainly some assessments are going to be about knowledge because knowledge is one of our goals. But skills, for instance, are not best tested with objective tests. The the best way of watching to see proficiency in a skill is to watch the student do the skill. Mm. And, And you can think of a skill as along a continuum from unskilled to highly proficient. It's a continuum. And and I would say that understanding and evidence of it is more in the, in the skills realm, in the sense that to see evidence of understanding, you ask students to perform with their learning and see if they can apply their learning and explain it. So anyway, to answer your question in summary, one problem with assessment is sometimes people simply assess what's easiest to test and grade. A second problem is more related to the the culture of schools. And I can tell you, especially in North America, I can't speak as much to Australia or New Zealand, but it's been said that grades are the currency of school. And kids will fixate on the grade. Will it be on the test or how much does this count? And if it's not a test, they don't think it's important. Mm-hmm. And yet that provokes the problem that it's more difficult and demanding and time-consuming to assess true problem-solving, true scientific investigation, authentic communication, where you're talking to an audience or, or writing for a real audience and looking for feedback from them. So it's easier to do shorter, decontextualized and less authentic assessments. And yet, if that's all we do, then the message to kids is, the only thing that really matters is if you can guess the right answer or fill in the the five-part science report format and missing the essence of what we should be teaching. So if we look to some of the challenges, so what, what should we do, be doing, Jay? How, how do we authentically assess understanding? Well, I have a couple of general principles for good assessment. Uh, principle number one is think of assessment as a photo album, not a snapshot. Any single assessment, be it an end-of-unit test, or a quiz, or the state, a state or national exam for that matter, can be thought of as like a snapshot, right? It provides a moment in time picture of what students know and can do and understand. But we know just from a psychometric point of view that any single assessment is likely to have measurement error in the same way as, as a photograph. Any, any single photograph is not going to be a complete portrayal of a person or a situation. It's just going to be a snapshot, one, a narrow view. Mm. But we, we get a more complete and accurate portrayal by looking at a photo album. And similarly with assessment, we get a more complete portrayal of what students know, can do, and understand through a mix of assessments taken over time. Moreover, because we have different types of goals, we need different types of photos in our assessment photo album. If we want to see if kids know basic facts about science, we can test them with objective tests. If we want to see if they have skills, like, for example, being able to mount a slide and focus a microscope, we watch them do that. If we want to see evidence of understanding, my contention is they have to apply their learning in some way and explain it. So that's one way of saying that not only do we need a photo album of evidence, 
but we need different kinds of pictures in our photo album. We might have a wide angle picture that is like a multiple choice test for 50 items. And we might have a macro view that goes deep to see if kids can really think through an authentic problem. So that's what I think is needed. I do understand that the performance assessments take more time and arguably they're more, I hate to use the word subjective because that sounds pejorative, but they have to be judgment-based. The teacher has to look at student work and judge against some criteria. And some people will say, well, that's too subjective. But I argue that's life. I mean, we have judgment-based scoring in the Olympics for diving and for figure skating. We, we judge writing. We judge music adjudication. And we do it responsibly. Job interviews. Job interviews, sure. So um, I, I'm not going to accept the fact that it's subjective. Therefore, we won't do it. Rather, let's do it in a way that is defensible and reasonable. Okay. I was grateful that you sent me some resources from a current project you've contributed to, which is the Global Challenge. And, you know, I'll link to this in the podcast notes because I think there's some really great projects within this Global Challenge. I think there's maybe eight projects, all to do with dealing with global issues, and that it'd probably work quite well for middle school, for example. I anticipate that's where it's being used. Could you tell us a little bit about the Global Challenge and a bit about the assessment processes that you've, you've chosen to employ in relation to that project? Yeah, the Global Challenge is a project developed by a friend of mine who is a curriculum director in a public school district in the U.S., and it's a week-long project at the, literally at the end of eighth grade, which is, a, which is a capstone grade. Most students would then go on to high school. And it's an interdisciplinary project, and it is focusing on so-called 21st century skills. Critical thinking, creative thinking, collaboration, and communication are featured. The essence of the project is the kids are introduced to the United Nations Global Challenges. I think there are 22 or so. These are big problems that the world is wrestling with. Example, being able to provide sustainable drinking water supply and agricultural supply to the world, et cetera. These are big problems. The kids are introduced to the problems. They get to pick one that's of interest to them. Every student gets their first choice, but then they are teamed randomly with three or four other students, so they form a team. They have a week to research the problem, propose solutions, come up with a proposal. They have a written proposal for their solution, and then an oral presentation to a panel of adults in which they have to make the case that their project should be funded. So it's it's a very rich, authentic, challenging project. What's interesting about it is, well, several things. Number one, it was the last week of school. And the reason they held the project there was the eighth grade teachers basically said to my friend, Mark Wise, who developed this, they couldn't give up a week of teaching during the school year. Mm. There's too much content that would be lost. The last week of school for eighth graders is typically a wash. And so many of them will skip and they'll go, they have a, a field day and a picnic and so Mark was only able to get the eighth grade teachers to agree that he could have the last week. Just whatever you want to do is fine. You can have them. So he set up this project. The second thing that was really interesting about it was the teachers were concerned about grading. They said, look, if they're going to spend a week on this, how are we going to grade it? And Mark said, we're not going to grade it. 
And they said, you are crazy. It's the last week of school. If it's not graded, they're not going to do it. They're going to blow it off. He said, give me one try. I think they'll do it. Make a long story short, after the first year, teachers and the parents or the adults who were on the panels judging were blown away by the work the kids had put into it, the seriousness, and many cases, the high quality of what they produced. It wasn't perfect, and not every kid did their best, probably. But overall, it was astoundingly successful, much beyond what most people imagined. And that, to me, harkens to a few lessons that we can extract from it. One, genuine challenges are motivating. If kids have choice in how they work, if they have choice about coming up with their own ideas, and if they have choice about how they're going to organize their thinking and communicate it, as opposed to everything being spoon-fed, they will rise to that. Authentic challenge, choice, a chance to direct your own learning, and a real audience are factors that work. We know this makes a difference, and we've seen it enough to say we can generalize from this. And this project is a manifestation of that. My conclusion from this is we don't have to do week-long multidisciplinary projects to be able to extract the features that that project has. Framing our work around authentic and interesting challenges and problems and design issues, giving kids some choice, and as much as possible, having an audience other than the teacher's grading device. We can't do this for everything we teach, but I think we can do more of this more often for more kids in schools, and I think we should. Going back to the assessment, could you? why did you end up having developing rubrics if it worked really well the first year? And, and how do you feel those rubrics are working at the moment? So I want to distinguish between assessment and grading. That project was authentically assessed. The kids took it seriously. They had those rubrics. And there were rubrics the first year. They had a rubric for problem solving, a rubric for their, including their critical analysis of the problem and their ideas to solve it. They had a rubric for how well they communicated both in writing and orally. And they had a rubric for how well they worked individually as part of a group and collectively as a group. Mm. The, and the first two rubrics were assessed by the judges. They also had what, what I like to call an impact rubric. And, and think about this in science. A student could, could complete a report in science and fill in all the categories, but not really draw a conclusion. Mm. And so if the more authentic the task or the problem, the more important impact criteria are. Examples, did your story entertain your reader? Did your scientific investigation prove or, or disconfirm your hypothesis? Did your design work for your purpose and audience? These are impact questions, and I don't think we ask them enough for students. And Mark highlighted those in this project. So to summarize, I would say this project was authentically assessed with high-level demanding rubrics by adults, adult audiences. Mm. It wasn't graded. But here's the point. The kids didn't say, how many points is this worth? Is it on the test? If it's not going to count, I'm not going to do it. The majority of them didn't do that. In fact, they rose beyond what many teachers thought they could do. Mm. 
That's great. I've had a, I had a bit of a look at these rubrics. One that I thought was fantastic was this collaborative team member rubric, the peer and self-assessment, because what it does is it there's eight criteria, but it equally weights being a responsible team member, a cooperative team member, a leading team member, and a self-directed team member. And I think that really pulls out some of the core qualities of being a good team member, and it equally uh, privileges, for example, listening to speaking. And I think that's something that often the narratives around, you know, leadership or strong leaders kind of doesn't encapsulate so much. So anyone who's running kind of group work with with young people or people of any age, really, I think that's a great, great rubric. I did have some questions in relation to, for example, the Global Challenge Effective Communication rubric. So if we look at the first criteria there, there's audience and purpose, and it doesn't outline in that much detail the difference between, for example, the low and the high. So, for example, the the inadequate attempt one mark would says somewhat appropriate to audience and purpose of convincing the judges to support this solution, and four is, or the the next one is just mostly appropriate to audience and purpose of convincing the judges to support their solution. I'm just wondering the role you see in kind of maybe spelling out within the rubric what's the difference between somewhat appropriate and what's the difference between mostly appropriate, or was it okay to have this kind of subjective kind of distinction in this case or or yeah i'm just wondering about that well for this particular project i have a thought both on this particular project and more general comment that'd be your great. question for this particular project i would agree that those words describing the different levels are 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 pretty soft and and easily misinterpreted or interpreted differently by different people mm-hmm. but but the impact criteria was very effective. And the impact criteria was, are the judges going to fund your project or not? Yeah. And if you didn't communicate it effectively, they're going to note that and they're not going to fund your project. You may have had a good idea, but you haven't expr- explained it or convinced us that it's worth funding. Mm. So the impact criteria, I think, are much sharper and clearer than some of the words that you referenced. Okay. That's particular to this. Now, the more general recommendation that I always have for rubric, and I've done a lot of work on rubric building and use, is you have to, first of all, building a rubric for the first time has to be thought of as an iterative process. It might take you three or four cycles, number one. Number two, you should always anchor your rubric in student work samples. Mm -hmm. The student work samples will help to do two things. One, and so for the Global Challenge, the first year, I would have said, let's look at the written reports of all the teams and let's evaluate them on their effectiveness. Four, three, two, one. Let's put them in piles. Now let's go back and describe the differences between the fours and the threes. And that difference that we see exhibited in student work becomes the more precise descriptors that we can use in the levels. Got it. That's point number one. Point number two, let's pick a couple of examples of fours, threes, twos, and ones to couple with the rubric. So next year, when teachers are teaching this, we have something to show the kids. Look at the difference between the four and the three. The fours identified an objection and and countered it. The threes just made their point and gave reasons. Mm. So if you want to get a four, you need to anticipate and counter objection. That's where the specificity of the rubric comes. 
And the second benefit of that, if you have the rubric with samples of student work for each level, then let's say a new teacher comes to your school and has never done the global challenge or never done your physics project. They can see the differences and it brings the rubric to life. Mm. And so that, that to me is how you improve rubrics that might be a little soft in their first iteration. That's great. And I, th- I think the fact you're highlighting there about rubrics being an iterative process or thing that you develop over time is really powerful. And it's also a bit liberating to kind of early career teachers who might feel, you know, oh, this doesn't capture it. Or, you know, I'm not doing a good job of assessing my students. It does take time to kind of build the, the corpus of student work and to understand what, what separates quality from, from not as much quality. Yeah, exactly. But here's the good news. And this is what I've been pushing for systemic curriculum work, that school districts, literally K to 12, should have experienced teachers within subject areas work together to craft high quality rubrics. And Mm. I recommend starting for high school level and then building developmentally appropriate, maybe simpler versions. But still, you should be able to see the through lines across the grade. So you might have a high school level rubric for science, one that's for middle school level, one for upper elementary, one for primary or lower uh, school, Mm. so that kids are familiar with the language. And by the time they get to you, they know words like confirm hypothesis or or provide evidence and show your reasoning Mm. because they've been doing it for 5, 10, 11 years. Mm. And that's how we build this kind of capacity by design. This is too hard to develop these capabilities by one teacher in one grade. Yep. Wonderful. I feel like there's more to talk about assessment. It's such a deep, it's such a deep topic. Well, I'll, I'll make one comment. Yeah. Do you have anything to add? That's, that's about backward design more generally. What I found in my work is that some subject areas resonate more comfortably with different stages of backward design. But let's think about the following categories of teaching. Physical education, technology, visual performing arts, teachers of writing. They have certain things in common. And let's also think about what in the U.S. we call extracurricular activities like drama, or theater, a band, a debate club, yearbook, or athletics. Kids are on sports teams. All of those categories, to me, use backward design very naturally when they plan and when they teach. Mm -hmm. But what do those areas all have in common? Whether it's teaching visual performing arts, or writing, or coaching football, or soccer. They're all performance-based right? In the performance-based areas of teaching and coaching and extracurriculars, backward design is the norm. Your desired results are better performance in next week's game or a compelling story that entertains your readers or a high-quality yearbook delivered by the due date. Mm. So the the end in mind is clear. It's a product or performance. Stage two, the assessment is high-quality performance. This is what we're working toward. And what we do in practice or what we do in preparation, which is stage three, is what we need to do to get there. 
So the performance-based areas, number one, backward design is so natural. Some teachers say, why do you need to label it? This is just what we do naturally. But also think about assessment. You don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about assessment because the assessment is what you're working toward. And the assessment is, is a manifestation. How did we play in the game? How was the opening night of the play? Did people love our yearbook? That's impact criteria. And that's how we assess. And by the way, what do we do when things aren't going well in the game? That's what we work on in next week's practice. Mm. The game is, is itself a formative assessment if, in some ways that helps us get better next time around. But in the somewhat more academic subject areas, including, I would say, history, mathematics, science, I think too much of our orientation is we got so much content to cover and we don't think like a performance-based teacher. Mm -hmm. And so assessment is about getting grades to see if you know stuff and then we move on and we, ha we can't spend a lot of time because we have so much to cover. So I just, I just wanted to make that observation. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, ma it makes me think, you know, in what ways could I make physics and this physics report more of a performance-based or accumulating in a performance kind of a thing. And I did brainstorm with a, with a colleague Jasper, who does, who teaches year 12 psych, and they have to do a report as well. And we thought of having like a poster day or something like that where the students have to present, or we could even, you know, invite some first year or first year or physics students to come in and the students talk about their reports or something like that. So, yeah, there's lots of, I think that's a powerful, that performance point is a powerful one. And it's one I'd, I should be thinking about more. Stage three is plan learning experiences and, and instruction. So, so what we've already covered a lot about the ways because it's backwards design essentially once you start looking at at the targets and the ways you're going to assess it it naturally leads into to saying things about how we should be be structuring our instruction but did you have anything else to add jay in terms of when teachers when they go away from listening today and try to implement some of those principles what it might look like in their classroom what might look different to what they were doing before and what are some of the key things they should keep in mind Yes, we have covered a lot. Let me try to summarize. So in stage one of backward design, we can identify at least three different goal types, related but not identical. Knowledge, skills, and understanding, conceptual understanding. How we assess those is different, and how we therefore teach toward those goals is not identical. As a general rule of thumb, I propose that what we would might call traditional teaching of knowledge is useful. That includes lecture, presentation, having kids read about content. Mm. That's how they acquire knowledge. Skill teaching, we know how to teach skills, direct instruction, modeling, guided and independent practice with feedback. That's how you develop skill proficiency. Totally. But as I mentioned, for understanding, Understanding must be earned. And so my contention is the teacher's role when understanding is the goal to adopt more of a role of facilitator and coach. By facilitator, we're going to pose questions. We're going to give you the challenge and we're going to step back. We're going to let you work on it. We might intervene and say, here's a strategy or here's a heuristic or here's a tip you might try. But we're not going to tell them what to do every step of the way because they're not going to earn understanding if we're doing all the work. As a coach, how do coaches prepare their players for the game? They don't only, only teach knowledge and practice skills. 
they have in the U.S., we call it a scrimmage. Mm-hmm. It's game-like conditions with feedback. It's a formative assessment, but as part of practice. It prepares you for the game. Because mm-hmm. a scrimmage, you have to put everything together, as opposed to, we're just going to test to see if you know the rules, and then later we're going to test to see if you have a skill. So I would say, to summarize, teaching is no one best teaching method. Our teaching methods are appropriately linked to our different goals. And therefore, there should be a variety of teaching methods as our goals are are morphing. Similarly, you should be able to go into a classroom and only look at the students and infer from what the students are doing what the goals are. Mm -hmm. If kids are copying notes from the teacher's lecture, I'm assuming the goal is transmission of knowledge. If the kids are practicing some skill and they're doing it with a partner and they're getting feedback, I assume there's some skill learning as a goal. And if I see the kids wrestling with an essential question, struggling with a problem, trying to design something or come up with a composition, I'm assuming that we're teaching more toward performance and application. And so those are the the instructional implications of backward design and our different goal types. Makes a lot of sense. I really like the the analogy of a scrimmage because it it makes me think we we expect students, for example, they might get one or two opportunities per year in a classical English class to practice public speaking, for example. And public speaking is an incredibly challenging thing. It's what we we as teachers do all the time. You know, you have to coordinate the content. You have to monitor the audience reaction and, and respond to that. You need to, you know, modify the intonation in your voice appropriate to the, the content you need to gesticulate. So, as you said, you're bringing all these things together. And we expect students to be able to do this by practicing it twice a year. But surely for yeah. complex performance tasks like public speaking, we actually need to provide more scrimmage-like conditions in which they can test ideas and, and, and try and fail and have quick, quick turnaround feedback and modify rather mm-hmm. than these just large kind of these large assessment tasks that are spread out over, over vast swathes of time. So in, in schools that you've worked with in more detail, is this something that you, you kind of bring into the instruction more, more frequent scrimmages? This is what Grant Wiggins and I have both recommended highly. And I, I can't say it's necessarily widely practiced, but the, the performance-based teachers get it because that's what they do and they know it works. I, I think the challenge is to help teachers of more academic content recognize that this works for them as well. But it also comes with a need to be really clear about priorities. And you can't just cover all the content there is to cover, as you well know, in science or in history, there's too much. You have to make choices. And I'm arguing that while it's not a knowledge understanding um, either or, I do think it's important to be clear about what we're trying to achieve in the long run for students and be able to focus and prioritize accordingly. So I would argue that if, for instance, the ability to communicate orally is valued in school and in life, which it is, we should we should have that as one of our priorities, and therefore we should give the time to be able to do it well, including the scrimmages that will prepare kids to become more proficient communicators orally. Mm. And it goes, I, I mean, writing a science report is another example of something where students have to bring together multiple skills and things. And I guess I tried to 
I was lucky enough to have my current physics students two years in a row. And last year, I tried to do some scrimmages. So, for example, the first time time we wrote anything, they just wrote the introduction. And then the next mm-hmm. time, I gave them, and that was when I gave them experiment. The next one, I gave them another experiment, told them what they'd be likely to see. We did it together, and then they wrote the experiment mm-hmm. and the introduction, the methodology, and we kind of built on that. So this year, I'm quite happy yeah. with how they, but it, but it was that kind of iterative approach. So you've given me a a, a word scrimmage, I guess, is mm-hmm. to to describe that. Is there other words you use around that, or is is scrimmage the one you usually? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's formative assessment and feedback is what's needed. But the, this the, what what the scrimmage analogy brings in is the recognition that being able to perform in an authentic way to show evidence of understanding and transfer is more than just an accretion of, of discrete knowledge and skills. And that's where I differ a little bit from Willingham, although I don't think he means it quite as literally as maybe it comes across. I, I don't think understanding is just the accretion of more knowledge. I think it's a qualitatively different, I, I do think it comes with going deeper and building knowledge structures. And, and therefore, instructionally, we want to be building the capacity and give people, students lots of experience to apply their learning in a scaffolded way, which is your example is a good exa- uh, illustration of that. Mm. And to, to tie this kind of idea to one more thing, and that's teaching itself, which is a performance art, I'm seeing increasing emphasis from people who are doing, for example, professional development on getting teachers on their feet, instead of just talking about things like behavior management, actually trying it out. And Doug Lemov's one that's really famous for this. And I've heard yeah. reports mm-hmm. from people who've attended these sessions where you're actually standing up in front of peers and maybe practice explaining something clearly or practice mm-hmm. cold calling or practice show call or something like that. And people say mm-hmm. how valuable it is to have that kind of sandpit to play around in. Mm-hmm. Is that something you touch on in, in your professional development at all? Well... Our professional development is largely around understanding by design. And, and so because it's largely a, a curriculum and assessment planning framework, the, the best, what I think is the most effective PD is to have people do design and get feedback on it. Mm-hmm. So we really do try to walk the talk. I mean, I just finished, for example, a three-day summer institute or workshop. I had 165 people from college professors to kindergarten teachers and every subject in between. And the whole three-day institute was built around the performance task was twofold. You're going to pick a topic that you teach and develop a unit plan using UBD. And secondly, you're going to review and give feedback to other people on their designs. The whole institute was built off of authentic unit development and of critique, you know, feedback. Mm. And so it, it was a learn by doing model. So I guess that's a long way of saying that what Doug Lemoff does for teaching techniques, which is you get the practice and get feedback mm-hmm. in the sandbox, mm-hmm. I was doing for curriculum and assessment design. So yeah, understanding must be earned. It must be earned by adults as well as students. He could tell you how to do classroom management but you're not going to understand it or be able to apply it as deeply as if he has you doing it and people are giving you feedback. Totally. Fantastic. All right. Well, next question, I guess, is kind of zooming out a little bit. Jay, where is the framework, where is understanding by design being used currently and what kind of impacts have you, have you seen? 
So the understanding about design framework has been around for literally 20 years. The first book was published in 1997. So it's got a, a, an impressively long history and it's still alive and well. It's being used a number of places from individual schools, including independent schools and international schools. It's being used in school districts. And as you may know, the U.S. and Canada, for instance, are organized around school districts. For example, my wife taught in Baltimore County, Maryland, with over 100,000 students in the school district. So it's a very big operation, a very big organization. Other school districts might have one high school, two middle school, and four elementary. But understanding by design is being used in some cases at the school district level, where they're framing their entire curriculum using UBD. That's at what I would call the macro level, as opposed to individual teachers plan units or courses using UBD. That's at the micro level. Mm. There have been some states that have either adopted or referenced UBD in their state standards. And there have been actual nations that have adopted the UBD framework, Which ones? including the Philippines and Puerto Rico more recently. And so it, it has... It is, I would say, a fairly widely recognized curriculum framework. Now, the fact that, that a school or district or state has adopted UBD does not ensure that it's being implemented well. Mm. In some cases, it's mandated and teachers see it as one more thing and they end up filling in boxes on a template totally. without much thought. But, but having said that, there are many places where it's had a great impact. One of which is is in the Global Challenge Project that you referenced. Mark Wise learned UBD as a teacher. He developed his own personal curriculum around it. And when he got into a position of a curriculum director for a district, he really was thinking of backward design when he had developed that project. I don't know if you had a chance to read the article that goes along with that or if I even sent that to I you. Did, I didn't spot that one, no. I'm going to send you both the article and a podcast that Mark made, and he will reference how backward design and UBD thinking really helped him develop that project. Right. The impact is, I'm sorry to say, we have not been able to quantify it for a couple of reasons, although there are many places where individual teachers and principals will talk about the impact that it's had on their school including even on their test scores. Neither Grant Wiggins nor I are university-based. We're not researchers. We don't have research teams. Mm. Ideally, we would have research teams going out and documenting. There have been some research studies, including doctoral studies around UBD, more on the implementation as opposed to the impact on learning. One of the things that, that I think we need is more research on the impact on learning but one of the challenges in that has to do with the measures being used. Because right now, most educational research, at least in the Western, you know, in the U.S. and Canada, is oriented around the results of standardized tests, mm -hmm. which I happen to contend are, are impoverished measures. I don't mean to sound too harsh. They're, they're, they're good assessments for some things. Surface knowledge, generally. Yeah, and to some extent, some degree of conceptual understanding, but they don't really get at deep learning or transfer, in my view. I think maybe IB assessments, international baccalaureate are probably a little better in some cases for that. 
And so without sounding defensive, I, I want to be careful by saying we need more research and we're going to use improper or inadequate measures to judge something that needs more robust measures. Yes. But it's hard to standardize and to, and to quantify some of that. So that, that's a need and, and a challenge, I w- want to admit. We've, we've spoken a lot about understanding by design today. And, and I, I'd have to say, you know, I, I enjoyed your book, but I had many questions and, and we've really got into a lot more detail. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to, to speak to you today. But I did feel like I, my understanding of understanding by design has been kind of filled in a lot through this conversation. What do you think are some of the common misunderstandings about understanding by design that are he- held out there? One misunderstanding sometimes results from how it is introduced or presented to a school or a school district. When it is mandated by someone on high, it may be received, especially by veteran teachers, as, here we go again, somebody went to a conference or somebody read a book and is, here's a new thing, but it's really not a new thing. We did this, they just you know, old wine, new bottle kind of approach. And I I will be the first to admit that most of the ideas in understanding by design are not original or brand new. I mean, as you noted, one of your questions, we draw from Jerome Bruner and John Dewey and Socrates and a Mm. number of, of, of thinkers and educators over the years. The idea of teaching for understanding is not new. The idea of backward design is not new. People have written about this before in different ways. But I do think that putting these things together in the UBD framework is beneficial. But just as understanding must be earned by students, a school leader who wants to introduce UBD to a faculty, I think needs to help people earn it. Uh, And by that, I mean, come to understand what UBD is and how it can be valuable and why it's worth spending some time to learn about and try to apply. Mm. When it's mandated to teachers who are already busy and overloaded, one more thing, if that's how it's presented, will not serve anybody well. And so to summarize, what I want people to understand is understanding by design is not a program It's not one more new thing that you have to add on to everything else you're doing. I think understanding by design is fundamentally a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about your craft. It's a way of prioritizing your teaching, focusing your curriculum, and making sure we're assessing everything that matters, not just the easiest things to test and grade. From a learner point of view, we want people to recognize that UBD is a framework that will support the best teaching and authentic learning and not just one more new thing. Mm. One other point I would like people to understand. Sometimes when people see the understanding by design template and it, it's got a bunch of boxes and it's a structured format, some people think that that's going to take away their teaching freedom. And I want to disabuse that notion in the following way. So if we're in a school or a school district, when we once we agree on stage one, once we agree on our desired outcomes, including understanding, 
I will say there's not a lot of teaching freedom there. Once you agree on those, you, you should work toward them uh, in the same way that you should work toward a school mission. If you don't want to work toward the school mission, you probably don't belong in the school. Yep. So I'm not going to apologize. There's not a lot of freedom once we agree on our goals. Stage two, the logic of backward design says, if we're going to be clear about our goals and agree to them, we should agree at least on some evidence of learning them. I'm not an advocate of standardizing every and all assessments the teachers use, far from it. But I am an advocate for having a few what I call core assessments that get at the heart of what we're trying to do in science, in mathematics, in writing, in art. And we should agree by design on those. Moreover, we should have them going up and down the curriculum from simple and scaffolded for young kids to increasingly sophisticated for older kids so that we have evidence that will show growth and also show what we need to work on. So when kids hit 11th and 12th grade physics, they've done investigations, they've done reports in science, and they're going to be able to to go higher in those realms than perhaps they are currently. So that's a long way to say there's a lot of teaching freedom in assessment, except we ought to agree on a few core assessments. Finally, when we get to stage three, which is how we teach, how we organize our classroom, that's where teaching freedom should, should flourish. I don't want anyone micromanaging my teaching, and nor do I want to tell somebody how to teach. As long as they recognize that there were different instructional modes for different goals, then do it in ways that work for your style and that meet the needs of your students. In the words of an old country music song, a river needs banks to flow. So think about the banks of the backward design river. One bank is agreed upon and important goals. The other bank is at least a few agreed upon core assessments and common rubrics. And those are the banks. Within those banks, there can be freedom and creativity and we celebrate teacher autonomy. But without banks of a river, you have a floodplain. And I've happened to tell you, I've been in some schools where teachers are just doing their own thing and it's a floodplain, mm. not coherent. Mm. So I want people to understand that the backward design doesn't handcuff you or prescribe how you teach, but it does guide and focus the systematic development of important ideas and processes. Makes a lot of sense. And, and building on that, I, I guess, when I was reading the book and reflecting upon it, I also didn't feel like it was like a thing that would handcuff me, but it, it's just a way to reflect upon my practice and to think about how I can potentially deepen what I'm already doing to promote you know, better understanding or deeper knowledge for my students. And, and crucially, this idea of more authentic performance tasks, I think, is, is a key one that's come away for me. So what are, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see teachers committing when they, try, when they first try to, to do understanding by design? One is trying to do it for everything they teach right away. Yep. I will be the first to admit this is a demanding planning framework, and it's harder than it looks initially. If you've never really thought about the, quote, big ideas or essential questions for topics you teach, that's hard to do. And if you don't know the subject well, it's hard to identify those. So for beginning teachers, this is a challenge. So I like to recommend that you think big, but start small and go for an early win. So by that, I mean, think big. Maybe three years from now, you'd like everything you teach to be planned and assessed using UBD. 
start small. I'm going to do one unit first half of the year, one one unit second half of the year, and and go for an early win. I'm going to go for units that I already know well. I know the content. I have good activities already. It's going to be easier for me to retrofit those into UBD than some other units. So start with those. The bad news is it's a hard demanding planning framework. The good news is like any skill, you get better at it. You become more facile at generating essential questions, coming up with really authentic tasks, developing higher quality rubrics, and it, it does get easier. So that's the good news. And finally, I urge people to use resources. Don't make the mistake of thinking you have to create all this stuff on your own. And I don't know if you've seen it, Ollie, but on my website under resources, I've got lots and lots and lots of, of really high quality examples and resources that can support the cause. So I encourage teachers not to make the mistake of thinking they have to do it all on their own. Great advice. You wrote your book a few years ago now, and, and I was wondering if, as the next question, is there anything that you thought at the time of writing the book that you've since changed your mind about? I would say that the core ideas of understanding by design have pretty much remained constant, but, but there have been refinements. So I'll give you two examples. One of the refinements we made, which is not actually evident in the book that you read, which is a 2005 edition, but one, some of our later writings, we've actually in, included on our planning template the category of transfer. And we, we call these transfer goals, and we put them right at the top of the unit planner. We've always believed that transfer was ultimately what we were working toward, but we, we didn't make it as explicit as we now do. And one of the things that's counterintuitive about putting transfer at the top of a unit plan is that we've actually proposed that the transfer goals not be a new goal for every unit generated by every teacher, but rather a, a department or a team of teachers would get together and collectively identify a, a small number of long-term transfer goals. So in science, one of them would be the ability to conduct a sound investigation. Another one would be to be a critic, to, to critically appraise scientific claims. A third one might be to effectively communicate knowledge in science. And a fourth would be to, to be able to evaluate current issues using science in the evaluation. like. Topics like global warming, for instance. So if a department had three, four, five long-term transfer goals agreed to, then as you're planning any unit, be it high school physics or a geology unit in eighth grade, you're going to be looking toward one or more of those transfer goals and trying to build student capacity to do that. So that's something we didn't think about in our initial work as overtly as we have since then. Okay. Promise of transfer. That's, that's really valuable. If it's okay, Jay, we might jump into some rapid fire kind of closing questions now. You've been very generous with your time. So first, first closing question is, what advice would you give to your first year teacher and or researcher self? I'm going to say another thing I'm going to send you is an article that I recently wrote, and it's called Advice for Teachers, Three Ideas from Grant Wiggins. And so the advice I would have for a beginning teacher is 
Number one, plan backward. Uh Be clear about the outcomes you're after. And those outcomes should be cast as understandings and transfer goals. What you want students to be able to do with your learning as opposed to just knowledge goals. Mm-hmm. and plan backward from those in the same way that performance-based teachers and coaches do. And the second is something that's in the article that I, I will send to you, but I'll summarize it. It's have empathy for the learner. As a teacher, even a beginning teacher, yourself, your own life has been a success in school. People don't go into teaching because they didn't like school or weren't good at it. They go into teaching because they were good in school. And they got things quickly and they went into subject areas because they were strong in math or science or art. But keep in mind that you're you're working with novices who may not have the same skill set or interest or motivation that you had. And some of them aren't so good at the school game. So having empathy for the learner is really important. And and that's a reminder for both beginner and even and maybe especially veteran teachers. And the article I send you makes some further comments about what that means and ways of having empathy. Right. Yeah, it relates back to the curse of knowledge as well. Carl Wyman's curse of knowledge. And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to see what it's like to not know something once you've known it. You've known it so deeply, as you've emphasized there. Next question. What, where do you get your educational fix? What, who are some of the people you follow on Twitter that you find come out with some really good stuff? You know, are there any publications that you suggest listeners go away and check out? Well, I have a number of heroes in this profession. Some of them are old timers like Jerome Bruner and and John Dewey. Mm-hmm. And one of my one of my favorite contemporary thinkers is David Perkins from Harvard University. Okay. David has written a lot about education. One one of my favorite books that's not as widely known, I don't think, is called Knowledge as Design. It's really interesting. He, he, he asks us to think about knowledge as something that has been designed and to, and to look at the structures of knowledge in okay. deep ways. Very, very interesting. I generally enjoy reading Educational Leadership, which is a, a monthly a journal from the U.S., from ASCD, and I, I admire the ideas there. Another one of my heroes who I'm actually going to be at a conference with next week is Dylan William. Fantastic. His his classic research on formative assessment and the implications for teaching is uh, is profound and he's he's brilliant and 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 practical as well. And and Dylan's just agreed to be on this podcast in a couple of months time so it'd be great to build oh, on terrific. on your on our discussion today and that discussion with him. Yeah, Dylan is terrific. You know, people that that I've admired over the years include Bob Marzano in the US who's a, a prolific writer. I I I'm astounded at the at the volume of his writing, but it's always sound and practical. And John Hattie's research and his synthesis is, is quite impressive. You know, there there are some nitpicky things I could say about both Bob and 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 John, but but in the main, I, I just have great respect for their their intellect and the the contributions that they've made. Mm. So those are those are some of my some of my go to people. Right, and I and I'll be sure to check out that David Perkins book knowledge is design as well so thanks for this recommendation. And he, has a, he has a whole series just google him he has some some much more contemporary books that really talk about the nature of modern education and and such but he's very thought thought provoking in my view great are there any are there any female educators that you found have had a, a 
a positive impact on your on your thinking or, or development of your ideas? Sure. My friend and colleague Carol Tomlinson. Mm. Carol is one of the leading experts in uh, quote differentiated instruction. And Carol and I go way back. We both have roots in gifted education, but Carol is always reminding educators of the fact that we're teaching people, we're teaching kids. Kids are different. They have different experiences. They have different talents and, and motivations. And one size fits all teaching is unlikely to be optimal for all kids. And so she, she inspires what I would say is both the head and the heart of teaching. Mm. And just a reminder of, of the need to get to know our students as people, to show them that, that we care about them. And one of the ways we show we care is to give them opportunities as appropriate for choice, where we don't, we give them different ways of learning things. We, we allow them to explore in different ways at different paces, et cetera. So I, I admire Carol very much. So where to next for Jay? You said you've had a career of over 40 years, but you, you still seem to have a great energy and passion for education. So what projects are you particularly excited about at the moment or other things that you're interested in? Well, I have four books I'm impressed. One is just out and it's on my website. It's co-written with a professor of linguistics and language learning. And it's really mostly her book, but it's about how you can use the understanding by design framework to work with students who are not native English speakers in the English speaking schools and who come from different cultures. So it's about how do we use UBD to work with culturally and linguistically diverse classrooms, which is something increasingly common in the States and I know in, in parts of of Australia. Definitely. What was the title of that one again? Called Using the Understanding by Design Framework to Work with Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Students. Got it. And it's published by ASCD. It's on my website. A second book I'm working on is the second edition of a book called Leading Modern Learning. It's with a colleague of mine who worked at an international school in Beijing, China, one of the most progressive educators I've worked with. And it's really more of a systems framework for school or district level work. And it does highlight the importance of working toward the so-called 21st century skills, but not at the expense of, but in conjunction with academic knowledge and discipline. Leading modern learning. What was the co-author's name? name? That is Greg Curtis. Great. Is he on Twitter? I believe so. Great. I believe he is, but I don't know for sure. He... Uh, is Canadian and is right now doing consulting work as I am. A third book I'm very excited about is the book I've written with Dr. Judy Willis. And I mentioned Judy is a neurologist who became a teacher, which is an unusual career path, and writes about the brain and learning. Our tentative title, but I don't know if this will be the final title, is The Neuroscience of Understanding, trying to look at what the brain sciences tell us about learning and how that fits with the UBD framework. I'm very excited. We, we literally just turned that manuscript in last week. So it'll be probably eight months before it, it emerges as an actual book. And I'm working with two colleagues on a book on the design and use of authentic performance tasks and projects, something that's been near and dear to my heart for a long time. And it's kind of a subset of stage two of UBD. But I'm, I'm proposing that authentic tasks and projects not simply be assessments 
but how we frame our learning from the start. Okay. And then the, the final book, which is going to be a labor of love, and probably the last big book I write, is going to be the third edition of Understanding by Design. Before Grant Wiggins passed away unexpectedly three years ago, we were, we were geared up to, to work together on that book. We have a lot of ideas that we've refined since the last edition, which you've read. And even though I won't be as, as good without him, mm. I will do my best to express our ideas, and I'm excited to do that. So I've got a lot of writing in my future, present and future. You sound and very I'm busy. to do that. That's great. And yeah. we, we look forward to those, those books coming out. And finally, finally, Jay, do you have any calls to action or things that you'd like listeners to go away after listening today and do? Well, one practical invitation is for people to go to my website, which is jmcty.com, and you can, you can scroll and you can see books and DVDs, et cetera. If they want to learn more about UBD, there, there's much there to see. But go over to resources, and there's a lot there. I, for example, have a 34-page list of hotlink websites that support UBD. Some are general sites and some are subject-specific. And you can find examples of essential questions, of authentic tasks, of well-developed rubrics, lots of ideas there. Also on the resource page are several dozen articles, my favorite articles. And if I were recommending one thing for people to get started is look at some of those articles. They're short, pithy, but hopefully interesting and, and will give lots of ideas. There's also a section of videos. And so you can see videos of Grant Wiggins and myself talking in relatively short videos on various topics. Grant Wiggins talking about essential questions. There's an excellent one, by the way, which I'll send you a link for. He calls it the problem of problems. Okay. And he talks about the teaching of mathematics. It's brilliant. Mm. So there, there are videos. There's some podcasts that I've done, and I will hopefully post this link when it's available. And there are ideas for school leaders of how might you introduce and support and sustain understanding by design in your school. So there's a lot there. And for people who are interested, that's a one-stop shop. Wonderful. Well, Jay McTighe, thank you so much for this fantastic and enriching conversation. You know, we started out talking about the Apple, the very, the punful Apple example vignette. And you talked about activity-orientated coverage based and test prep and how those things often detract from kind of essential question and enduring understandings. We, we had a, a bit of a debate about understanding and I think for me at least uncovered and peeled back some layers on understanding as you put it. You talked about, I really love this phrase, a good question is like an itch, which I think is a great you know, provocative statement to, to start teachers thinking about how they can use essential questions. And you also talked about the way in which essential questions teach students that not, you know school isn't all about getting a right answer straight away which i thought was a powerful a powerful statement as well we talked about performance and the role of authentic performance tasks in motivating students as well as pushing them to higher levels of understanding and we also talked about the idea of scrimmage and how how short kind of opportunities for formative feedback you know you referenced dylan william is is really important in developing those skills for game level performance as you put it it's been a two-hour conversation. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I've learned a lot. So thanks so much for joining us today on the ERRR. 
Okay, it's been a pleasure being with you. And I'm going to send you a few links to some of the things we've referenced that you can post also, such as the Global Challenge and some other resources, including my website. So feel free to post those. Sure, no worries. Thanks so much, Jay. It's been a pleasure, Ali. You take care. Best wishes. All the best. See ya. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Jay McTyre. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned. And this episode, there were definitely a lot of them at ollilovell.com. If you've enjoyed the episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. Making a donation, however large or small, will help me to cover the costs of room hire and sound engineering. Check out patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting this show. If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you get any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode of the ERRR or any other episode, then please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. It's always wonderful to hear from listeners. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.